Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, one of the fastest growing movie podcasts in the world, where we discuss all things film. On this episode, we discuss Hereditary and Midsommar, both written and directed by Ari Aster. Hello, movie friends. Welcome back to the show. This is Anthony. And this is James. We're going to do a very special episode on Hereditary and Midsommar. And we've covered both of these films very briefly in past, like, very horror, briefly. Comp- very briefly, <laughs> past horror episodes that were, like, compilations with, like, four or five other movies. But I think that they both deserve to be talked about more in depth. And they were both made by Ari Aster. And these were two, these are two of the biggest A24 productions that independent film studio that we're huge fans of. I think Hereditary was one of its most successful in its entire history. Yeah, for sure. Because they've been around since, I want to say, like, 2013, 2014. Yeah, but, like, yeah. Hereditary was was like what put it on the map of like film fans mouths like everywhere yeah and uh, that makes no sense put on the map of film fans mouths (laughs) yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna take over (laughs) (laughs) and ari aster came out of nowhere and uh he was like these aren't his first two movies this he made a smaller movie before hereditary i can't remember what it's called it's it's a weird take it's also very dark and disturbing about like this family where the father and son have a relationship it's really creepy very interesting that's kind of like the um what's his name who made uh, the fighter? What's his name? David o. Russell. David David o. Russell's first movie, Spanking the Monkey. Okay, yeah, is about a, a a teenage boy who starts a relationship with his mom. Very weird. But um, Ari Aster came onto the scene as this refreshing new voice in horror because in the 2010s and in the 2000s, like that classic horror had kind of disappeared, and horror movies, for the most part, not all of them, but generally every horror movie was either like jump scares, um, found footage, torture porn, just super gory for no reason, and just like plain, and not really that much complexity to the stories, not that much psychology to the stories, and it was kind of the same thing over and over and over again, and I was honestly, I think the horror genre was getting stale in the in the late 2000s, early, two, early sure. 2010s, and I was kind of getting sick of the mainstream horror movies that were coming out. Yeah, we were like in a lull of horror films, and like they were exciting in the early 2000s, but yeah, right, for about a decade they started to fall, and they were very repetitive, same thing over and over again. But we're currently in a boom of horror genre, specifically Ari Aster, Jordan Peele, Robert Eggers, uh, Jennifer Kenstall, directors like that who have kind of reinvigorate, reinvigorated the genre and brought it not back from the dead, but just breathe new life into it to make it more exciting and to, to, to not change the genre, but to take it in new directions. Now we're like Ari Aster's style. It's like this this weird sort of eerie surrealism in there. His movies get more, have like more freakishness as their films progress and the plots develop. And so he's got a really interesting style and take on the genre. I think that the, the new boom in horror has to do with two things. And it's uh, the the start of A24 and Blumhouse. Yeah. Because these two production houses, they have been financing and distributing a lot of great horror movies over the last 10 years. Blumhouse, famously super successful over the last 10 years. And they have a few franchises they started out of, with 
with paper scratch, like no money at all, like Paranormal Activity, The Purge, and they produce Get Out and a ton of other great horror movies. So I think these two production companies have really led the way for modern horror horror to really take off. Yeah, because they're taking swings and they're missing on some, but they're hitting on a ton, and especially not even just horror films, but movies like The Lobster. Yeah. And, and films it, yeah. that are just weird and that wouldn't really get a theatrical release from a major studio, but because they're, they're taking those chances and giving these filmmakers the budget to make the stories that they want to tell, it's really creating a new new world of horror for us. And the filmmakers are not getting big budgets, they're getting enough to do the movies. And what's most important is that these two production houses, they're giving the filmmakers freedom to do what they want. Whereas the studio will be on their over, over their shoulders the whole time and changing things and wanting them to include things or erase things. Whereas A24 and Blumhouse, they give the, the filmmakers money and let them do their thing. And that's why I think their movies are so great and stand alone amongst the genre. Yeah, Get Out was like a $3, 4000000 million budget, made like $280 million domestically, mm -hmm. I think. And then uh, Hereditary budget is $10 million, $80 million gross worldwide. That is a pretty profitable movie. Yeah. And then Midsommar was a $9 million budget and $47 million gross worldwide. So both very successful films. And I believe Midsommar has been a huge hit streaming. I don't know the numbers exactly, but I think that it really, when it came on Amazon Prime, it's, it seems like everybody has seen that movie. It's been there for a year. And yeah. movies only stay on Amazon Prime and stuff like that if they're being watched. There's there's no reason for it to be like on the main page for Amazon Prime or early in a category, but mm. it's still been there for like a year. Yeah, and I love, I love Ari Aster's style. It's very classical. He has a lot of control over the camera work he knows what he's doing with the camera he's not just filming a scene like oh let's put a camera there and put a camera there everything is very controlled and concise and clearly pre-planned and pre-ordained based upon what he wants to tell the story like and you could say is one of his best shots is clearly the, clearly the opening of hereditary where he does this long take where he shows the uh, treehouse that we will see in the finale of the movie so we know that he's telling us so much information he's telling us that's important and then this camera pulls out of the out of the window, and then we're in someone's room. And then we turn the, the camera the miniatures. Yeah, the camera pans through the miniatures. And then we go. We approach this miniature house, and then he pushes the camera into one of the rooms, one of the bedrooms in the miniature house. And then it holds. And then after a few moments, um, Gabriel Byrne, the actor, walks into the door, entering Peter's room. And so now he's completely changed the environment without even moving the camera or cutting. So and it's a perfect blend. Exactly. So he has a great control of the camera and what he can, what is possible with telling the story. And before we continue on cinematography, the best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast, if you want to help us out, is to share us with your family and friends or become a patron at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost podcast. Patrons get perks like personalized videos, podcast schedules, so you can see what episodes are upcoming. Top tier patrons get Top tier patrons get a monthly shout out on the podcast, which we're doing in this episode. So all you top tier patrons, stay tuned towards the end of the episode to hear your name called. And the best perk of all is every single patron has access to weekly bonus episodes, which we post every Tuesday. It doesn't matter if you're in the $2, $5 or $10 tier, you have access to it. Nobody else can listen to these episodes except for you. So head on over to our website, RaidersOfLostPodcast.com also to check out all of our sources of content, our merch, our custom movie posters. Follow, subscribe wherever you're listening. Hit the notification bell. If you're watching on YouTube, subscribe. Hit, the no hit that notification bell. Hit the like button. Leave a comment. And thanks so much for tuning in around the world. And what's really cool about Ari Aster is that so far, all of his movies have been pretty much uh, stylistically and tonally different from one another. Well, he's only made two movies really. Yeah, like two big, two big feature releases. But they look very different. Yeah. Like Hereditary is so dark and dim and grim, whereas Midsommar is so bright and 
colorful and vibrant. And I love how he's changed those the tonal visual styles so much. And also, I think the cinematography of Midsommar is for sure superior to that of Hereditary. Not that Hereditary doesn't have fantastic cinematography, because it really does. But Midsommar, it seems like every single shot is so purpose-designed and aesthetically symbolic to parts of the film and the stories and the themes. And it, you can tell... He learned so much from making Hereditary, and they just expanded on his knowledge and practices with Midsommar. And what's really smart about his writing is that he tends to set his stories basically for the most part in one location. Hereditary, the majority of the film takes place in the house, as most ghost like house horror movies do. But it's also a smart way to write a script where you can keep the budget low. Yeah. The less locations, the less actors you need, the better for the for the money. And so, and then Midsommar, they basically just rented out this giant field, built the sets there, and they filmed everything there. So this one location basically, except for the first 15 minutes of the film. But otherwise, all they had to do was build a few sets. Honestly, the sets probably didn't even cost that much money to make, whether it be that table or those couple of buildings and then that temple they set on fire. That's it. Otherwise, nothing was nothing else was built. So very small production needed to make these movies, which is a really smart way of making movies. That's an excellent point, Anthony. Really, really good point. Thanks, James. <laughs> That's why I get paid the big bucks. Or the mildly big bucks. But <laughs> And also, the thing with, with Ari Aster and his style, it's not exactly, I wouldn't say, completely scary. Not like jump scares. It's more disturbing. Like, every time, the first time I've watched each of these movies, I think we... Everyone I've talked to about these movies, they're like, this movie effed me up for like a week. For like three days I couldn't sleep. I was thinking about it for so long. It was just so disturbing that like my brain just can't even process things anymore for a couple days. That's the difference between like jump scares. They work in the moment, but then they, they, they dissolve in your mind and you're like, oh, that was stupid that they just turn the music up real loud or or turn or there's a flash or like a cat jumped out of a cabinet like that's all such bullshit in horror movies when you see that stuff it's just these like this filler horror these fake scares that they just get from you based upon your just like your carnal impulses of hearing sounds and seeing sights that like you weren't expecting and there's nothing special about that anyone can make something pop out of the corner of a frame but to make someone the audience like feel dread and feel like truly horrific things are happening in the story, it's a different kind of filmmaking. It's much more mature storytelling. Ari's films, both of them so far, also follow a very similar blue blueprint. Blue <laughs> blueprint, where it's the, they open with these interesting characters. They're all flawed, and they all seem to like you know. There's there's something wrong about the family or the situations, and we eventually learn quickly what's going on with both stories and characters. And then it's followed by. Uh, an event that causes grief among the characters and then we like get into the story and the plot and usually it's around the third act where well, he spends the whole first and second act building this disturbing tension that I was talking about earlier it's just long detention just slowly extended and then the third act is really where he's just smashing you with with just the most weird disturbing freakish things you can ever imagine and the interpersonal relationships he tends to write a pair of characters who have to, who are kind of forced to be together, but they, and in a way, can't stand each other. And there's this awkward tension. So in Midsommar, in Midsommar it's uh, Danny and Christian because Christian obviously wanted to break up with her, but then he let her tag along on this trip, and she because she's getting the feeling that he doesn't want to be there with her. And and then also with um, Annie and Peter in Hereditary, the mother and daughter, mother and son after Charlie's death, um, and. 
we learn how awkward and tense their relationship with one another is. And I think those are very similar dynamics where they kind of have to be together because the mother and son and then a couple stuck on this trip, but like they don't want to be around each other. Yeah. And I and saw it. Sorry. It's super awkward. I saw this thing online where someone called Ari Aster the spooky version of Paul of um Wes Anderson, <laughs> which kind of you could think about because of hereditary. I think that's why people might say that with the uh, miniatures in the opening. It sort of has that um, playful theatrical element to it. But I would say he's more of like the spooky Paul Thomas Anderson. You know, these very intricate stories, excellent dialogue, great characters. Not that Wes Anderson's don't have that. Just Wes's are more like campy and fun. I don't. But, I think if you're going to compare someone to Wes Anderson, they need to use the same techniques as him. Yeah, and that's what Ari Aster does. I think people just see the miniatures, like, oh, it's kind of like a Wes Anderson movie. I would say he's more of a weird, creepy David Fincher. Yes, yeah, Fincher does. Extent. Fincher's scary makes movies about killers. He never, he never does supernatural. He never does real horror. Um, and Ari Aster is his filmmaking is very controlled, precise, shoots digitally. Um, seems to have a good grasp of the techno technology that he's working with. So I'd say he's very much in line with David Fincher. And what I love about his horror films also is, obviously from Scream, we learn like the rules of horror genre and like how like the virgin never dies and how always at the end like the the like the main tag the protagonist survives, gets one last scare. And yeah, but they maintain their innocence. You know, they maintain their purity of why they deserve to be the main character and protagonist. But in Ari Aster's films. The protagonist survives. They're the only one left, really, but they're completely different. Like one in Hereditary, he's possessed by a demon. Even though he survived, he's still possessed by Paimon. And then Danny at the end of Hereditary, she's possessed by the cult. So they've changed so much, even though they're still the survivors, and it kind of flips the horror cliche on its head where, of course, they're going to survive, but now it's like a totally different person. And you can tell how much Ari Aster is a fan of the horror genre because you can clearly see the inspiration for Midsommar came from Rosemary's Baby. And then the inspiration from, I mean, Hereditary came from Rosemary's Baby. And then the inspiration from Midsommar clearly came from The Wicker Man. Mm -hmm. um, and they're, they're both like, he has homages to both in these films. And um, I think he did a fantastic job of telling similar stories as those. And the main themes of both of them are clearly grief and trauma. Why do I keep saying words weird today? Grief and trauma. I thought you said it fine. I said it like grief. Grief? It was like grief. Like I was, it was like coming out in slow motion. <laughs> grief. So grief and trauma are the main themes, but also the concept of cults are present in both of them. Mm. And what's so fascinating about Hereditary is that like they actually make this demon come back to, to come to the earth, which is so cool and, and interesting. And then Hereditary, the cult of the, uh, the, the Swedish village, what's it called, the Hagger? Hagger, yeah, Hagger, Hagger Village. And, yeah, I just love I love both of these movies. They're so fun because they're so different. And, honestly, I, I watched them both recently, and I can't decide which I like better because maybe entertainment-wise, Midsommar is better for that, but I think that Hereditary is just, like, it's such a game-changer in the horror genre that it's that important of a film, I think, in his catalog and will be for his entire filmography. Yeah, I'm not sure how he'll be able to top it. It's a really, really good movie, and they're both fantastic. And I think that he's I've, I, he's a necessary voice in horror now, now yeah, and I'm glad we have him. And he's currently filming Disappointment Boulevard with Joaquin Phoenix in the lead roles, which I can't wait to find out what that's about. Yeah. All we, right, so— Want to get into uh, Hereditary? Let's do it. Let's get into Hereditary, which was released in 2018. And this follows this grieving family who is haunted by tragic and disturbing occurrences. And the reviews for this movie are excellent. It has an 89% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 7.1 on IMDb, which I thought was a little low. 
Really? 7.1? Yeah, a 7.3. I would give this an 8. Yeah, at and least. Then, and then Metacritic has an 87%. Wow, that's so low for IMDb. Yeah. Well, I mean, people expect certain things from horror nowadays, I think. But from a de- for a debut, it's such an excellent movie. Yeah, and this movie is super dark. It's super grim. Um, and it's it can be hard to watch, especially when you see the death of Charlie, the daughter, how surprising and shocking and out of nowhere that was. And, and then from then on, it's just like this downward spiral towards like the depths of hell, and it's just a mess. It's crazy. Yeah, but Ari, he sets it up so well where immediately we know things are wrong with the tone of the cinematography, but also the music and the ambiance that we're hearing, and also like the noises that he has, the sound effects, which we, which are like coming from the from Paymon, and they're coming from Charlie, and like those are just in the background, like randomly in different scenes where Charlie's not even present. I really like the music because it's important because you typically see horror movies in the first act, you have like the family at the house or whatever, and it's like usually like pretty nice music and very chill and nothing scary, and then they wait until things get scary to start making scary music, but he's like. Right off the bat, like I'm giving you the tense, crazy music so you know that things are messed up around here. And I think that sets the tone right off the bat how good the music is. Yeah, and so the film, the the opening act starts with Annie's the mother of the family and her grandmother her mother has died. So the grandmother of the family has passed away. And it's odd because this is a great way to develop develop characters. They're all indifferent to the passing of the grandmother they don't feel really anything about it even annie's like should i feel something because we learned from her eulogy i'm a i'm a googleizer <laughs> i bet you didn't know what i what i knew what a googly was did you <laughs> she's talking about how her mother was like very secretive and had private friends and would would feel odd about them being there in general and it's just you, you get this weird vibe about what the family was like and the dynamic and also you see these on repeat viewings you see these little nuggets and hints that Aster put throughout the first act, like you see, you start seeing the symbol, that strange symbol that is on uh, the necklace of the grandmother, and also we see it on like the wall in the attic. And, and he's wearing it too during Annie, the you googling. <laughs> and then um, it's on the telephone pole that um, Charlie's head is decapitated from. It's, there's a sign on a symbol of it. <laughs> and then also like that, there's a guy in the in the uh, the what do you call it? The wake room, the funeral hall, the wake, yeah, the funeral parlor, and. Um, he just smiles at Charlie, like super happy. And so you're seeing these nuggets that, you know, this this family seems to be like they have no control over what's about to happen to them. They don't know what's going to happen. And it seems like no matter what they end up doing or learn about what is underway, they can't stop it from happening. And uh, the Annie's mother and her uh, occult members, they plan this out. And they scheme this whole thing to happen according to their plan, and um, it seems as though they ha- they follow it beat by beat without even knowing it's it. It's like predetermined, yeah, for them. And it's so odd, like learning about the relationship that Annie had with her mother, where Annie's mother, like basically, we learn eventually, forced her into having Peter, which she didn't want to have, which she confesses to Peter awkwardly, and her mother wanted to be the one that breastfed Peter. And there's that odd miniature in the first act where we get a close-up on where it just shows that image because Annie's miniature work, she's basically kind of showing her headspace at the time in each given situation. She's recreating events of her life. And they start off tame, but they get so much more odd and, and realistic and disturbing. And that's one of the more disturbing images you'll see in the first act is her her topless grandmother wanting to breastfeed her son. Yeah, I'd say that's the weirdest thing you see at first. And yeah. and the situation with that is is because the mother wanted the son obviously to create Paymon and put the demon inside of it. But uh, 
Annie ended up having another child, Charlie, and she just well, she wouldn't let anyone near Peter. Yeah she, yeah, she wouldn't let her mother near Peter, but then she gave her Charlie basically. But yeah. Charlie was born a girl, so the grandmother couldn't put the demon in, couldn't fully put the demon inside. The Charlie. demon wouldn't have wanted to stay in the body. So, so Paymon is yeah. inside Charlie for the entire existence of Charlie's life, which is so weird and interesting because it, it makes sense. But because the character Charlie has those weird ticks. Charlie makes those weird like twig statues and is obsessed with heads like she gets the the head of the pigeon and is trying to make a body out of it and so it, it explains so much about her character. His name is Twigbird. <laughs> <laughs> I had a question for you uh, when I watched it again. Yeah, no, I'm pretty much an expert, so what do you got? No, I just want to see what you think. I'm not saying you're an expert. Let's I'm not get a little carried kidding, away here. Kidding. So um at the end during the climax when when Peter is trying to escape from the house, right? And he jumps out the window and he falls to the to the ground into that flower bed, mm -hmm. right? I think that in that moment, so he dies then. I think that he died and then you see the light of Paymon flicker around and then enter through his back. And so Paymon enters into his now dead body. And then, but then after that, um, Joan calls Peter Charlie multiple times. And so what I assume happened was Paymon was always living in Charlie, right? Yeah. And so I think I think Paymon doesn't know who he is yet. Yet. So he thinks he's Charlie. The soul of Paymon thinks he's Charlie because he was raised as Charlie. And so at the end when he's when he enters Peter's body, it's just Peter's body is an empty vessel and Charlie slash Paymon is inside of his body. Thinking it's thinking that he is Charlie, but he's actually Paymon. I don't think that he dies when he jumps out the window. I think he's just unconscious. I don't think he would really like the chance of you dying from just like a two story jump like that. I think it's pretty low. I don't know. I, I think it's possible to die from that. And it's, then he, it's not like he he didn't have like any severe con contusions on his head or face. Yeah, but you know, that's, that's, his neck. That's, that's just how I look at yeah. it. Like, it seems as though. Peter died, and then Charlie slash Paymon entered his body and took over. Well, that's clearly what happened. Yeah, I don't know if he died or not. That's up for interpretation. I think he did, and that because when I first watched the movie, I thought it was Peter with Paymon possessed inside of him, inside, and he goes into the treehouse. But then I realized, oh, there she's calling him Charlie. That means that Charlie's soul slash Paymon's soul entered peter's body and that's why they're calling him charlie it's a really interesting way either way it's just a, a great ending to yeah, the film great ending but charlie she she's such an interesting character because the actress who plays her millie soprano i think here's her name oh, no, millie shapiro does a fantastic job as this character because charlie has these odd characteristics like we said she's obsessed with finding a head for her little statues, which is obviously a metaphor for when her head gets taken off in the back of the car at the telephone pole. And obviously, and, all, and also Charlie is very awkward in a way. She doesn't really under, know how to communicate with other people and other kids. And she's obsessed. Just the way she dresses. Yeah, yeah. She's obsessed with like the chocolate bars. And also she has the nut allergy. And one of the most horrifying scenes in the movie is the nut allergy scene. Oh, my God. Where she has the cake and... It might be the most terrifying scene in the entire movie, and just watching her go into anaphylactic shock is just so scary because it's a common thing for people who have the nut allergy. It's such a crazy scene because the first time you see her eating the cake, uh, her face is all flush, and you're like, oh, is, what's up with her face? Why is she getting all flush? And then, then you're like realizing, oh, they were cutting walnuts earlier on the countertop, and then she like then she's choking in the car. And it's such a wild scene. And then this, I think this is the scene that really 
made people like gas like everyone I when we saw this in the theater, everyone gasped when she sticks her head out the window of the car and she did it because she couldn't breathe. So she's trying to like gulp in fresh air. And then Peter moved out of the way of a dead animal on the road, which was obviously put there by the occult members because the telephone pole we saw earlier had the symbol on it. And then they it sim- they seem to have preordained this accident and he drives her her head hits the telephone pole and it gets shot clean right off. I'm guessing they didn't predict that her head would come clean off. Maybe they're trying to create a car crash where they both die and the soul could go inside. Maybe that's possible. Because I, yeah. I think it's too unrealistic to think like, oh, she's going to stick her head out yeah. the window. They'll know there'll be nuts that's at the party. Too, yeah, that's too asking so, for so too much. So maybe you're right that maybe that makes it real a fact that Peter does die at the that's end. That's what I think, yeah. So maybe they were just trying to create a car crash. It's a pretty. He's up 25 feet, you know. That's pretty high up. You're, this he is a jumped, big house. He jumped from the attic. You're, he, yeah. didn't, he didn't jump from the second floor. You know what, man? Attic. You convinced me. Peter or died. I kind of convinced myself with your input. Well, you never would have convinced yourself without me saying it. So, so. thank you. I'm not, I'm not upset. I know you're getting upset right now. <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> taking credit, after. I'm taking, I am taking credit. <laughs> Congratulations. You, you did it, man. <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but what's crazy, what I really like about the scene is the way Peter reacts to the death. Because you you would expect, we've seen it in so many movies, like him to run out of the car and be like, Charlie, Charlie, oh my God, and, and panic and like see the scene. But I think that he reacted in a way that like could be understandable for a natural reaction for some people where they would just freeze up and kind of not want to deal with it. Yeah. That seems to be his personality that Ari Aster set up where he doesn't want to deal with anything. And he's like that teenager that's yeah. just smoking smoking uh, out of his bong in his bedroom, doesn't yeah. want to go to school, doesn't want yeah. to do anything. And so just like he shuts the world out, he shut out the accident, didn't want to deal with it. And that's why he drove home and went in his bed because he didn't want to face it. And I, you can't blame him for that. He's just, he's still, he's a kid. I know he's We've played by- We've all been teenagers. He's played by an actor who's is clearly a little older. But Alex Wolf does an amazing yeah, job in this he's, movie. He's fantastic, but they think the character is like 16, so he's still very young. We've been, we've all been there. You know, yeah. when you're a teenager, you're, you kind of just don't want to accept all your responsibilities. I'm sorry if there are any teenagers listening. I was 16 <laughs> once and I was such a D-bag. But uh, <laughs> I don't know, was? It's, it's <laughs> past tense. Well, I'm not a teenager anymore. <laughs> But it's it, a lot of teens. It's a thing that we have. It's just, we're not fully developed. We don't want to take responsibility for our actions, and so that's what, what that's what Peter's doing. He doesn't want to accept full responsibility yet. And if he can avoid it for a few hours, it doesn't matter or exist yet, and he's yeah. not in trouble yet. And then you just have that dread of him lying in bed waiting for his mom to discover it, dude. It's so terrifying. And then Tony Collette's screams are just horrifying. Once again, our roommate walked in at the per- worst possible time. Mo always walks in when it's the worst part of a movie. Yeah. When there's five minutes of a woman screaming. Yeah. Screaming bloody murder. And we were like, it's not that horrible of a movie. <laughs> <laughs> but Tony Collette really steals the show in this movie. Alex Wolf is great. Gabriel Byrne did a good job. And the actress who plays Joan. Molly Shapiro. Um, oh, Joan is yeah. played by. Give me one second. Joan is played by. I can't find Emmy her. winner. She's fantastic. She's excellent in The Handmaid's Tale. She's so good. Um, but. Uh, oh, uh, Anne Dowd. Anne Dowd, yes. Um, she won an Emmy in, for The Handmaid's Tale. But. Tony Collette is absolutely astounding. Is it Collette or Coletti? I believe it's Collette. I think it's Coletti because it's Italian. Coletti. Tony Coletti. Tony Coletti. Yeah, but she's Australian. But it's an Italian last name. Well, I'm going to say Colette. Okay, I'm going to say Coletti. People are going to be very confused. We'll, we'll see who's right. <laughs> <laughs> but anyways, Tony. <laughs> she should have gotten an Oscar nominated for this. Oh, absolutely. This is another thing where uh, the Oscars, 
they tend to overlook horror over and over again. Um, horror movies are rarely nominated. Get Out was the last major one nominated, and that's because it was part horror, part sociopolitical, very complex genre blending. So it wasn't straight horror, where this is straight horror. And I, it's just, especially performances in horror movies, they always get overlooked. And sometimes they seem to be the most hardest to do, the most difficult to do. Like, especially when in terms of, you know, actors pretending to be possessed and things like that. Like, they have to do some really crazy stuff in these scenes. And Tony Collette really does intense some of the most intense acting I've ever seen in this movie. It seems like the most exhausting role performance yeah. of all time. She's constantly screaming. It's almost like Revolutionary Road, where them two are just constantly screaming yeah. at each other. But same thing with Tony Coletti, where she's Coletti. Tony is just weeping at one scene. She's screaming in another one. She's out of her mind to range crazy within another scene. And so her performance has such a, a huge range of emotions, and she nails every scene. Yeah, she's fantastic. And her character is tragic because... We we get that early scene where she's comforting Charlie in bed and like you know she's like trying to talk to her but she's being very motherly. But then we get the scene. Well, but on that scene also we have a weird situation where Charlie's like, now that Grandma's dead, who's gonna take care of me? Yeah, and she's like, what? I'm here. Mm -hmm. What about you when you're dead? Exactly. So Charlie seems to be like incapable of wanting to take care of herself or the idea of growing up. But she, I think she thinks that her grandmother is really her caretaker. Yeah, in a way. It's a weird situation. It's a very interesting character, you know. And, and Annie, Tony's character, she's, she seems to be a, a kind of a caring mother, not completely. Because she has that scene where she's comforting Charlie, trying to comfort Charlie. But then she has a scene where she basically forces Charlie to go to the party. Because she was very much annoyed by Charlie earlier for wandering off. And then, you know... She's very frustrated, and sometimes, you know, kids can be a little annoying, and you can lose your patience as a parent. It's understandable, but and and Annie basically made Charlie go to that party with Peter, and and Peter showed when they have that epic fight at the dinner table, and Annie's like, "I know, I don't blame you. I know you. It was an accident." And then Peter's like, "Well, she never would have been there if you didn't force her to come with me." Because the thing with it is, Annie's not dumb. She knows it's like a party. She, yeah. she even asks, are you going to be drinking? Like, what kind of high school kid is going to, like, an, a barbecue at school? Yeah, uh, an outdoor barbecue, yeah. So it's not like she didn't know that he was trying to go to a party, but I think that if you could imagine being in Annie's shoes and having a child like Charlie where she's, she, you know— Has no friends. Yeah, she's always Anti-social, yeah. really. doesn't really know how to speak to people— and you're right. She seemed to get really annoyed with her about walking without the shoes on because the shoes in the house are are issue with the family. Like they make sure they do that. So, I think in her shoes she was just like, I need a night to myself. <laughs> I think in her shoes. <laughs> if you're in you're her tied shoes, that, go to tie that tie that together. Yeah, it was like a stand up joke coming back to its full circle. <laughs> <laughs> There's so much hidden within this movie, and I really like the character Joan because she is the connection to to the mother. And it seems as though the mother, Annie's mother, the grandmother, she's called the queen. We see in that frame photo at the end in the treehouse. So I'm guessing that she was the leader of the cult. Oh, for sure. And she spearheaded the entire operation. Which, and she was probably, based upon that, that last note that she left for Annie about how excited she was for the future, she seemed to be like so proud that her family was able to carry out this deed of bringing Paymon back. Yeah. She's like, it, the benefits will 
will outweigh the sacrifice to our family, mm -hmm. something like that. Exactly. And after Charlie's death, the three characters, they all deal with the grief and trauma in different ways. So Annie's obviously devastated and she's weeping for days and she and Peter, she won't really talk to Peter because Peter won't just say, I'm sorry. And also Peter has been trying to ignore the whole situation, but I mean, you're, you're a teenager and you just got your sister killed. Can you imagine what that's, what he's going through? It's, it's probably insurmountable, the emotions that he's feeling. So he's kind of just shutting himself off. And then Steve, the father, he still has a son to raise that he still loves very much. And he's trying to keep the family together. He's trying to be that glue to keep their relationship stable or at least intact or at least stay together. He tries to have, make the dinner for everybody. And it's really telling when he when uh, Annie goes up after they fight and he just puts his hand on Peter because, again, he says he has a son to protect. And he, underst he understands there's an accident. He knows Peter's sorry. They both do. But he's the only one who seems to have forgiven forgiven Peter. But like we said earlier, this was all part of the plan by the by the occult group. And once Joan gets a hold of Annie and she's able to trick her into carrying out those that medium the seance. the seance. And once she tricks Annie into doing that, that's when that's what allows Peter to be possessed by Paymon. And then from then on out, it's all hell all, all hell breaks loose. It's it insane. And before she meets Joan, I think a really important piece of information is she goes to the the, the help group, the, the mm -hmm. grief help group, and she's speaking for her first time there. And she's talking about her past and her life. And up until this point, we thought she was just kind of had like a somewhat normal life. She was just estranged from her, strained from her mother. But that's what we learn about her mother trying to sink her her talons into Peter, but then taking Charlie. But also we learned that her brother was a schizophrenic who killed himself because he said that her mother was trying to put people inside of him. So clearly the mother was trying to put Paymon inside of her brother. It's just, it's crazy family. Like yeah. what did this mother do to them? It's insane. It's crazy. So it shows you that her brother wasn't schizophrenic, was telling the truth the entire time. Exactly. And then I love the attention to detail that Ari Aster put into this movie, especially I think the, the coolest bit is when Annie is going through her mother's book, she she sees an image of Paimon, and he's on a horse or a goat or something, and he's holding the little staff with the hand, and it's doing like that, that handsome the hand gesture, the or thing something. that Peter does at, yeah. in class. Yeah, and, and then when Peter's in class and Paimon takes control of his body, he forces Peter's body into the alignment of that exact image, and that is just an amazing attention to detail, and that scene. When he bashes his face against the school desk over and over again, that is just so wild and so shocking. And and Alex Wolf played it so well. He he really sold that scene, and I think he did an outstanding job. And I love the possession scene the first time during the seance where she basically thinks she's bringing Charlie from the dead and and bringing her spirit out, not knowing that it's really Paymon. And because, like we say, he's just flips horror genres on their head and usually it's not as scary but Ariaster makes it like a truly terrifying experience for specifically Peter because he he's again he's dealing with so much trauma from having killed his sister gotten his sister killed and now his sister's spirit is there and it's it's kind of like making things break in that fire and it's I'm sure it's terrifying and you feel like you're in Peter's shoes in the scene exactly and also because Stephen never told Annie about the desecration of her mother's tomb which is that it was her body was dug up and taken by we eventually know was the occult members because they put it in the attic with that symbol and all the candles and uh, because of that 
Annie has been on this desperate path to figure out the mystery of what's going on. And if Gabriel, if, if Steven had just told her what had happened, she might have been able to connect the dots sooner than this before it was too late, possibly. Yeah, it's it's probably, you could be right. But it, it's interesting how in the dark Annie was, but it seems like the signs were there the whole time if she just paid attention because her grandmother, her mother was living at the house. Mm. So, like, I'm sure she knew things were going on, but, like, and I know her mother was very private and had her secret friends, but still... You got to kind of realize these things that are going on. But again, she has a, a family and she's got that job where she's building the miniatures. And eventually when her, her state of mind is so erratic and she's losing it, that's when she destroys everything she's been working on for months. Yeah, exactly. And, and she's being driven a little crazy by what she thinks is Charlie. Well, it is Charlie drawing in the notebooks. And, you know, it's Charlie's soul slash Paymon's soul that is now basically out and trying to take over completely the body of Peter. And the third act of this movie is just utterly bonkers and so frightful. It's so good. From the start of Peter, no, from the starts with, she's trying to show Stephen the dead body and he sees the dead body in the attic. And then she then tries to talk him into throwing the book into the fire. Into the fire because she tried she, to and she, she started getting lit on she fire. She thinks that so she believes that if the the only way to destroy this demon is to burn the book. And she she has figured out that if she throws the book into the fire, she'll be caught on fire and she'll die. And so she wants to she wants to do it, but she can't do it herself. She doesn't have like the strength to kill herself willingly. And so she begs her husband, Stephen, to throw the book into the fire so that it will destroy the demon, but also her along with it. So at least she can save Peter's life. And so you think it's going to be like this tragic, but also triumphant moment where they're going to defeat the demons. Peter's going to be saved, and but Annie will die, even though Stephen doesn't know that's going to happen. And then when Steve, when Stephen, but, but Stephen, he doesn't believe in it. He thinks yeah. he thinks Annie's crazy. He thinks Annie needs mental health help, and he's like got to put her away, or we got to get help because she's driving them both crazy, and she's she's going to be. She's a danger to Peter because we also learn about how she sleepwalks in that time that Peter and Charlie, Peter, Peter and her woke up. I think Charlie was in the room too, and they were all they shared a bed. They, they were shared all, a room. They were all covered in paint thinner, and Annie had a match in her hand that she lit, and so they woke up like that. And the other time where she is trying to pull Charlie, she's trying to pull Peter's head off again. Mm -hmm. The concept of I need a new head, I need a new being while he's sleeping and she wakes up to that. So she's a danger to Peter and has been for a long time. Exactly. And then because Stephen doesn't want to throw the book in the fire, she finally takes it like, okay, I, I'm going to do it. I'm going to kill myself. And then she throws the book into the flames. And then Stephen catches on fire, completely covered in flames. And it's the I think it's the best image of the movie. And they showed a glimpse of it in the trailer because it's so shocking just seeing him burning alive inside the living room. It's insane. All I got to say is stunt people are crazy. Oh, yeah, they are. We love stunt actors. They yeah. do the wildest stuff. But this is insane. Just full engulf in flames. It's nuts. It's crazy. It's nuts. And then, like, from then on, it's 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 absolutely amazing because then... Then Pe Peter wakes up. He wakes up and he's like, doesn't know what's going on. And then we just see... Annie in the corner of the of the ceiling, <laughs> the top corner. It's wild, and she flies away, and it's so terrible. In theaters, I was like yeah. screaming with fear nuts. inside of my head. I was like shaking, and like I couldn't take it. And then she follows him down to the living room. He finds his father's body, which is a horrible thing to have to experience. I'm yeah. sure beyond this words. This kid, poor kid. And then, um, 
the naked guy is the same guy that's that was smiling at Charlie at the wake. Yeah. He's the same guy, but now he's nude, just in the corner of the room, just smiling at him. And then and then he's attacked by his mother, who's possessed by Paymon. Then we all know they go into the attic, and she cuts her head off, and then he jumps With the outside. Piano wire, and he shuts, and he jumps out the window. When she's and be, just staring at him, and she's going like, "I can't watch." I like watch that through my fingers every time, man. Oh, I, man. I can't do it. It's, it's so crazy. It's so nuts, man. Yeah, and so when he jumps out the window, I think that he dies. You're right. I think I think you're right. Yeah. But then it's wild because he becomes Paymon, and then he goes inside the the treehouse, and, and now we have like. All the cult leaders and, and members there, and they're worshiping this god Paimon, who covets a male body and finally has what he needs to thrive on Earth, and who knows, take over everything. And, and then the two beheaded bodies are bowing down of at the Annie throne. and her mother. Yeah, and it's just it's insane. It's wild. And it, it, Alex Wolf just has like this blank stare in his face, and it's clearly it's because it's Charlie. She like she like woke up in this body, and she kind of she has no idea what's going on. You know what I mean? So and then she, do you think at this point it's Charlie? Yeah, Joan calls her Charlie multiple times. Yeah, because it's Charlie is Paymon. Paymon grew up believing he was Charlie. Okay, yeah, you're that's right. what it is. He doesn't know what's happening. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so that's why when he wait, wakes up inside of Peter's body, he's he he thinks he's she thinks he's she is char she's Charlie inside of Peter. Gotcha. That's why. And so they have to teach. Charlie, that he, she's Paymon, and then he can probably she can probably as she grows stronger can uh, he he can like probably gather the knowledge of his past and, and the skills in the other world. It'll probably come to him yeah, exactly. eventually. It'll be, he's yeah. like a prophet probably in yeah. a way. And what's so cool about the ending is like all I always think about is like what happens next. Like does he bring like the image of Paymon? He's like standing on the tower of gold and jewels and treasure. Does he bring treasure and wealth to all these people? Does he like take over the stock market? Does he become <laughs> like a world leader, like a billionaire, like super villain? Like what's gonna happen? Yeah, he would like take over for sure. It'd be pretty be it's, It'd be like devil's advocate with Pacino, yeah. like a top lawyer. Oh man, just screwing so cool. people and getting tons of money. No, but, no, they'd 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 be the head of the um, Illuminati. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's insane, man. Because the ending is he becomes a demon. He's possessed. He's the what horror movie really ends like that? Besides a, a great one, besides Rosemary's Baby, where the demon's born and the and the bad guys win. It doesn't really happen at all. It's great. It's such a cool ending. I love it. And there's so much I'm sure we didn't get to, but you want to do um, some superlatives for this episode, some fun facts, then we'll get into our intermission. Who is your MVP? Ari Aster. Amazing debut film. Theatrical release. Yeah, I have Ari Aster too. Great, great directing. Best scene. Steve getting lit on fire. Same. <laughs> <laughs> Craziest thing I've ever seen, I think, in a movie. Best shot. The opening shot where you talked about describing the miniature bedroom as the camera pushes into the bedroom and then it turns into a real bedroom and Steve walks into the room. Mm. A beautiful I, shot. I like the the final shot where the scene of inside the treehouse has been shrunk and it's surrounded by the black background. So oh, it looks like so cool. it looks like one of the miniatures. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Thanks. Best actor, Tony Collette. Tony Colletti. Tony Collette Coletti. T. Coletti. <laughs> Best line. Who's going to take care of me when you die? I think it's a really telling line said by Charlie about how she's not maybe who she thinks she is inside. Mine is, you're always wearing that stupid face on your face. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. All right, let's do some trivia for Hereditary. And so Tony Colletti had told her agent that she didn't want to do any more heavy, dark films and only wanted to do comedies. 
but she loved the hereditary script so much she couldn't turn her down. Hey, she she broke out in horror yeah. with Sixth Sense, so back to her roots. Um, Tony Colletti called Ari Aster the most prepared director she's ever worked with. She praised him for practically having the full movie already shot and edited in his head two years before they started filming. And before we head on into our intermission, I, I'm sure everyone listening is a huge horror fan. But what's truly terrifying is not being regularly groomed up, which can be a horrific experience for an intimate partner. <laughs> so head on over to manscaped.com and get their new lawnmower 4.0 trimmer using our coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping. This brand new groomer is waterproof, skin safe, has a 7,000 RPM motor, has a wireless charger, it has a built-in light, which is like the greatest accessory to any product for like grooming I've ever had in my life. Fellas, you got to get on Manscaped. Everyone listening, if you don't know what to get a gift for your man, like a I love you gift, it's your birthday, I don't know what the hell to get you, what do you like? Here's some stuff to like trim your, your body with. And it's stuff that we'd actually like and enjoy. So everyone... Head on over to manscaped.com. Use our coupon code Raiders of the Lost for 20% off and free shipping worldwide. Check out their performance package 4.0, which comes with the lawnmower as well as some other cool accessories like their wipes and weed whacker and everything you need to look spiffy for your significant others. Gotta look spiffy, guys. Gotta look spiffy. And it's a truly horrifying experience, I'm sure, <laughs> that some people experience. All right, let's head on over to our intermission. We'll do some fun, fun games here. Let's go. So first up, we got movie quote competition. I have two. I have one from a fan and one from me. Who's the fan? Yuvi Lopez. Diehard fan. She's the best. Let's go. I'm as real as a donut, motherfucker. Oh. I'm as real as a donut, motherfucker. Is it Al Pacino? No. Come on. This is easy. I don't know. Need a hint? Yeah. And your name is Tex. No, oh, no Rex. No, oh, it's dumber than that. Yeah, it's um, it's Once Upon a Time in, in Hollywood. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. yeah. Great one. Yeah. Great one. Good quote. I like that one a lot, UV. And then I have one from myself. So, even if you gave him the money, he'd still kill you. He's a peculiar man. You could even say that he has principles. principles. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I think I know it. It's Woody Harrelson in No Country for Old Men. Carson Wells. All right, your turn. Can I get a puppy? Yeah, a cuddly, fluffy one in a Bratz movie star makeover, Sasha. I'm just fucking with you, Daddy. I look, I love a Benchmade Model 42 butterfly knife. Um, Say it again? But don't, I, don't, don't mess it up. Don't mess, yeah. Can I get a puppy? Yeah, a cuddly, fluffy one in a Bratz makeover movie star, Sasha. I'm just effing with you, Daddy. Look, I'd love a Benchmade Model 42 butterfly knife. I don't know. Kick ass. Oh, Hit girl. You're s I knew it was like a young girl in like an action uh -huh. serial uh, killer movie. Uh -huh. I was, yeah, that was good. That was a good one. Haven't seen that in a while. All right, guess this movie release year. It's because of Tony Colletti. The Sixth Sense. 1999. Yeah. Yes. You got it, man. Good job. I almost said 96. Mine is Phone Booth with Colin Farrell. That's on like Amazon Prime right now or Netflix. Yeah, it just came yeah. out. Yeah. Phone Booth. That's I like that movie. That's a good movie. 2003. Close. 2002. Ah. Oh, nice try. All right. Loser. Movie pop quiz time. 
You didn't have to call me a loser. That's uncalled for. <laughs> yeah, you're right. I went too far. Way too far. It was man. very uncouth of me. <laughs> what movie did Sandra Bullock win her Oscar for? The Blind Side. What? The Blind Side. <laughs> <laughs> the Blind Side. The, the Blind Side. <laughs> <laughs> that was a bad one. Yeah. <laughs> the Blind Side. <laughs> That was like the worst voice crack in history. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Okay, here's mine. You like everybody, Marge. <laughs> Colin Farrell was a last minute replacement in the film Minority Report. What actor did he replace? I have no idea. I'm just gonna have to make a straight guess on this. Johnny Depp. No, Matt Damon. Matt, oh, Matt would have been good in that role. Yeah, that would have been cool. Yeah, he was supposed to be in it, and then uh, it was scheduling problems. So Colin, Fer Colin Farrell was That's too uh, bad. Has Matt ever worked with Spielberg? No. Wow, that's wild to think. Yeah, hmm. I'm sure they'll work together at some point. I don't know. We they're, could be wrong. Has I feel like he hasn't though. No, he hasn't been in a Spielberg movie. Wow, it's too bad because no. I mean Spielberg's probably arguably the best director of all time. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, I don't, I don't see them working together. If they would have, they could have. <laughs> I'm sure they can work it out. No, it's when, too late. The <laughs> it's too late. They're just like, ah, whatever. <laughs> Screw it, man. Spielberg's only going to make like a handful more movies. If you Dude, the guy's it. made like 40 movies. He's probably got six more left in him at least. Yeah, I'm, I'm, yeah, a handful. That's a handful in one. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Who's our biggest hater? Biggest hater of the week. Oh, this one was, uh, was a Twitter hater. Oh, Twitter's the worst one. Honestly, like... I was always skeptical skeptical about making a Twitter because it's the cesspool of humanity. It's like the worst place on earth. From what I've seen, from what I've seen, it just seems horrible. Everyone's just out to get each other. It's it's really bad, and all this is people ta attacking each other, which is pretty wild. But um, we had one hater who hit us up. Was it a response to a post? No, he just he just tweeted. All right, so he just tweeted us blind, didn't respond to a post, and um. He said, I listened to your guys' Fellowship of the Ring podcast episode. Uh-oh. You guys made a lot of factually incorrect statements when discussing the lore of Middle-earth. You shouldn't just make things up. <laughs> if you don't want to read the books, just watch this person's videos on YouTube. And I wrote, this was four days ago, happy to hear all the inc incorrect and made-up things we said, still waiting for a response, so I don't know if he made a list or not, but it's probably, we make mistakes, you know, we, we pronounce <laughs> names wrong, we understand that. Uh, we're not perfect, we appreciate everyone who... Puts up with maybe mistakes that we make or or misspeaking here and there, but I would love to see that guy speak for three hours about Lord of the Rings off the top of his head and not mess up anything. We didn't just we didn't make up Lord of the Rings. Yeah, like to just say like we're not like we, I didn't like I'm gonna make up this character name just to piss people off. We, like that's not what we're doing. We probably doing. made a couple of mistakes. No big deal. Yeah. Like just who cares? It's, My goodness, it's a, it's a dense lore. It's it's very dense. It's quite dense. <laughs> <laughs> so you know what? I'm sorry. We're 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 not perfect. I'm sorry we made up the entire podcast. Every Everything we said was made up. <laughs> so apologies. You know what that guy should do? What? Unsubscribe. Unsubscribed. <laughs> he probably never even subscribed in the first place. I don't want him to subscribe. <laughs> Screw him. All right. Biggest supporters of the week. Or do you have a hater? I have a hater. Okay, you got one. Let's let's see what your hater is. Is it from TikTok? Yeah. On oh, no, a Harry Potter clip. I'm not going to say it's, it's TikTok handle because it's inappropriate. You shouldn't even say the handles. <laughs> yeah, I won't. Unless it's a fun person. But it was a, it was a, but it is a fun clip. It's a fun one. Uh, but I'm not going to say it, but you know who you are. <laughs> it was a Harry Potter clip. And I, and I was talking about how they don't go to college. Yeah. No university. And he's, he or she's, they said, 
Very sad that you do not think a wizard. Very sad that you that you think a wizard is not capable capable enough. Slow down, slow down. <laughs> Get it out. Very sad that you don't think a wizard is capable enough to attend a real university. It's very sad. Unsubscribe. <laughs> very sad. Who's that, Donnie T? Very sad. <laughs> it's very sad. Very sad. That Everybody says the wizards are the best. They can go to university. It's very the sad. Best wizards around. It's very sad. You don't think that. <laughs> And I have a top comment. It was actually from a clip I posted today about uh, the Snake Eyes movie, which just came out and bombed at the box office. And then I made a clip about it. And it seems like everyone seemed to not even know the movie existed. <laughs> and someone, uh, Finesse, Finesse Nico said, I'm going to be honest. I had no clue it was out. <laughs> that's funny, but that's not a hater, is it? No, it's a top comment. Oh, top comment. Okay, yeah. That's they, got, funny. they got over 2,000 likes on that. Wow, that's a, that's a lot of likes. Yeah. I swear, some people like... They, they get like they get famous from their comments. Yeah. They're like, check it out. I got like 4,000 likes. I'm famous, bro. Someone on ours got like uh, 15,000 likes on that Harry Potter clip. That's like went more viral. attention than our clip. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's move on to some awesome supporters this week. We have two great five star reviews. The first one is from Nelson Cornejo. 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 You got to listen to these guys. Got to say, as soon as I started listening to these guys, I knew I had to keep listening. So happy to hear you're listening to us, pal. Thanks, pal. It's super fun to hear the brothers talk about film, roast each other, and express their <laughs> opinion on characters, genres, and actors. The podcast makes the most mundane task at work feel better. So with that being said, I'm giving a five-star review with an unsubscribe. Unsubscribe. Job well done, boys. Can't wait for more. Thanks, Nelson. Appreciate it, bud. <laughs> and then uh, from Nate TK421. Chemistry. This is a fantastic <laughs> podcast for whatever you're doing. Two brothers who compliment each other so well via conversation is refreshing and easy on the ears. They always have fun and love talking cinema, cinema with perfect amount of funny commentary and intermission bonuses like guess that movie quote, release date trivia, and more. Wish nothing but for six. Wish nothing but success for these guys. May the force be with you too. Also with you, Nate. Thanks, Nate. Thanks so much. Guys. Appreciate it. Really, that's really, re that, that's really nice. Really love reading these five star reviews. I love reviews. the five star reviews. Unfortunately, you can only leave them on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, which is weird. Yeah. Uh, I, Spotify needs to get up their game. Is what it is. On this day in film history, today's August 2nd, In the Heat of the Night premiered in 1967. American Graffiti premiered in 1973. Nice. In the Sixth Sense premiered in 1999. I didn't Whoa. do that on purpose, I swear. Are you sure? I swear to God. Are you sure? I swear to God, kid. Is that why you said let's do this episode on this date because I have a special Yeah, it's uh, just movie so I fact. could fit in on this day in film history and, and mix it with the guess this movie release year. Well, it worked. Wow. I planned the whole thing. And my streaming recommendation is on Netflix and it is Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. I think it's one of the most underrated movies like ever made. It's so fun. It's one of Edgar Wright's best. It's it's a really good time. And I think it has maybe the funniest shot I've ever seen in a movie where Chris Evans' character <laughs> dials a phone number with a gun. <laughs> <laughs> the sideburns. That's I love that shot. I also love the shot when the girls go at goes to his apartment to see if he's there. And then um, his roommate answers the door. He's like, oh, no, Scott's not here. And then he jumps out the window behind him. <laughs> Just missed him. <laughs> Such a good movie. Great, great movie. My streaming recommendation is Bram Stoker's Dracula, which I just watched. And I had not seen it. Um, you watched it without me? Yeah, I watched How it without you. Because I have a life. You Clearly, you're watching life. Dracula at broad daylight. No, it was last night. <laughs> In bed. <laughs> so so you, yeah, further explaining your point that you have a life? <laughs> it's a great life. It's an interesting... <laughs> Fulfilled life. <laughs> <laughs> I do things. 
I drink and I know things. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, I had never seen it before. And Francis Ford Coppola made it. I just finished the novel audiobook and it's really good. And then the movie, uh, it plays pretty close homage to it, but also does its own thing. And it's I it's got I gotta say it's one of the most visually stunning movies I've ever seen. Willem Dafoe is Dracula, right? No, it's Gary. Oh, I thought what's the one Willem Dafoe is Dracula? I don't think he's ever played Dracula. Or am I am I crazy? Yeah, you're crazy. Yeah, I'm crazy. But Gary Oldman is sensational in it as Dracula. And unfortunately, Keanu Reeves was cast in it be- because Francis Ford Coppola, quote, this is a quote, I had to cast someone who was young and hot to get the girls in. <laughs> <laughs> Smart director. And Keanu, I love him to death, but when he was young, he's not a great actor. Point break, he's still not a great and, actor in that. And this, he's younger. He's and he's and When he's in scenes with Gary Oldman, it's just them two. It's like, holy crap, like, this this guy's playing a different kind of game. Like Keanu can't keep up, but I love him. But that's the only drawback to the movie is that Keanu's acting is not even close to Gary Oldman's. But it's a visually stunning movie. Great. Right. Well, let's get back into our episode, and we'll continue now with Midsommar. Oh, man. Which was released in 2019, and it follows a couple who travel to Scandinavia to visit a rural hometown's fabled Swedish Midsummer festival this what? movie had some can i finish oh, the synopsis sorry. oh my goodness sorry interrupt much that was a long beat well i was taking a breath <laughs> <laughs> what begins as an idyllic retreat quickly devolves into an increasingly violent and bizarre competition at the hands of a pagan cult and this movie had i'm not done <laughs> Shut up. All right, I'm done. I was like, what else can you say about it? <laughs> this movie had basically the same, almost the same scores as Hereditary. It had 83% on Rotten Tomatoes, a 7.1% on IMDb, and a 72% on Metacritic. So very close in line with Hereditary scores. So I, th- I think people think it's a super, an inferior film to Hereditary in general. Yeah, st- still, I just think the story is just a little less... In involving as the hereditary story. But what's incredible is these came out a year apart. That's insane because Hereditary came out and we we're like, oh my God, I need another Ari Aster movie. And that's like immediately, like right after that. It's like, it's insane. Yeah, it, it could be a production thing where he could have filmed Hereditary like two years before. But he actually just... wrote Midsommar before he wrote Hereditary. Yeah, so he probably had both these scripts and then A24 bought them both. And like you said earlier, with his the way he writes to film so efficiently, I mean, Midsommar, like you said, it's mostly in one location and yeah. they, they actually filmed it. Um, what's what country was it in? It's not Scandinavia. No, they filmed it in in Budapest, I think, or Han. Yeah, Budapest, Hungary. Oh, Hungary. Okay. So they filmed it in 2018 in July. So they he he must have went right into production after Hereditary was released. Yeah, I, my guess is that A24 probably saw the early cuts of Hereditary. It was probably and, finished and, for a while. And they were probably like, okay, let's let's greenlight Midsommar. It's also going to be super cheap. He knows what he's doing. So, so let's just get, get in production as soon as possible. Hereditary was released on June 8th, 2018. So he went to filming a month after it was released okay. for Midsommar. And that makes total sense because, the like I said earlier, the way that Midsommar's production practically was set is like it all you do, you spend a week building the sets and you can shoot. Yeah. And they, they can film 95% of the movie in just one spot. So and it seems like a place in a time of year, July, where you're not going to get much rain and you just pretty much need sunlight all day. So uh, maybe they were thwarted by maybe some weather, who knows, because some of it takes place so much, so much of it takes place in exteriors. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in, but in I mean, outside. It, it, I don't know the weather in Budapest at that time of year, but it could be very, very dry. 
very sunny, clearly. Very, very the sunny. whole movie is in sunlight. That's what I love about the movies, the the way it looks. And it it reminds me of, you know, that movie Insomnia with with Al Pacino. Of course, our Nolan boy made, Chrissy Nolan made it. Where And he's in Alaska at a certain time of the year where the sun never sets. Mm-hmm. And obviously the sun, it does have some night scenes in this movie, but this movie for a horror movie... 95% of it is during the daytime, which is so different from what you're used to, which is why I think it's really refreshing because he still instills that fear and that dread and that horror, and you can see everything clearly, which is pretty rare. Yeah, it's as dark as it is bright, this movie, and that's what makes it even more— I like that. I, you like that? Yeah. I think that's what makes it more impressive is because we're seeing everything so clearly, and the it's such a colorful movie, and you think that this like environment of being in sunlight, being surrounded by nature and— and these people in all white, which usually signifies like a purity if it's if it's something religious or cultish. So you don't really think that something bad is going to happen in this environment. But what makes it so great is because even though we're perfectly lit, broad daylight, very vibrant, it's more horrific and, and disturbing than hereditary. Yeah, and this was – you could say this was Florence Pugh's breakout because her, her uh, she made this film called Lady Macbeth in England. Uh, a couple years before Midsommar, and I, it's, she's absolutely fantastic in it, and she's the lead, and you could say that was her, her very first major role. But then Midsommar, because it was so successful, that I think really catapulted her into the industry in a big way. And I think because of Midsommar, that clearly allowed her to get cast in Black Widow, for sure. Yeah. So I think Midsommar was a huge step well, in her actually, career. Little Woman. No, for, yeah, but I'm saying Midsommar came out first. I'd say Midsommar Mid- came out before Little Women? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I would say so. And also, she's the lead of Midsommar. In Little Women, she's a supporting actress gotcha. yeah. in an ensemble. Everyone has, like, she only has, like, 30 minutes, 20 minutes of screen time, Plus, probably. she's with Emma Watson and Saoirse Ronan, who are much bigger stars at the time. Yeah, and Saoirse's the lead of that movie. You 2019, know I mean? so they came out the year, same year. Okay, yeah, she had a big year. But Midsommar, she's the lead. You know, she's leading the movie. That's a big deal. Yeah, and she is carrying the hell out of this movie, and she's very similar to... Um, Annie in the first film in Hereditary where he both, likes putting women through hell <laughs> they're they're both tr- experienced tremendous grief which is unbearable to watch at times because they both both these films again the blueprint is very similar we have opening scenes of or opening acts of getting to know the characters in a very eerie world and then something horrible and traumatic happens and then both our lead characters they have scenes of just moaning uncontrollably with grief, which I don't think you see too often to the extent in films that he put in these movies. I think that with Midsommar, I think he was like, you know what? I want to get this done as quickly as possible, the grief part. Um, like actually like seeing what happened to the loved ones. Mm-hmm. Whereas Hereditary, Charlie doesn't die until like 30 minutes in. So I think that he kind of fast-forwarded in this one. But I think they're also dealing with the oddness of the grief, or not feeling grief, of the grandmother in the first act of the of yeah, Hereditary. Yeah, so it helps establish the family. So, so yeah. there's a tone of grief, but it's just like I said, they're not experiencing it, which yeah. is odd. And the grief in the with what da- with Danny is her family dies. Her sister performs a murder-suicide on her and her parents using the exhaust of their cars with tubes and hoses going from the garage to them tape, duct tape to their mouths and faces, which is one of the most disturbing images I think I've ever seen in a movie. So that and then also the fire in Hereditary is just like, what the hell? So messed up. How do yeah. you come up with that? What I really like is, once again, Ari Aster puts little Easter eggs in the first act of this movie as well. And my favorite one has got to be uh, when she calls her parents and they don't answer the first time and they're sleeping in their bedroom. And there's a framed photo of Danny on their t- bedside table. And then there's a... A beautiful bouquet of flowers behind it 
uh, signal, signaling and foreshadowing her becoming the May Queen later in the film. There's also the portrait, which is like one of those Target cliche paintings you can get online of the little girl with the big bear. Mm-hmm. Oh, like yeah, nose yeah. to yeah, nose. Yeah. And also the opening shot of the entire film is that large like tapestry piece of art, which basically shows you all the events of the entire film. Yeah, the mural. So yeah. the mural, which I can run through real quick if, run you, through if it, you have a moment. Hold on, let me see. I have time. Yeah, do you have, do you have anywhere to be if... I can I can wait. Okay, can you wait? Yeah. Alright, so this is this is the mural at the opening of the film. It shows the murder suicide by Danny's sister with their parents and the tubes connecting them, a figure of a skeleton representing the Grim Reaper. Christian watches the dysfunctional couple with the dishonest boyfriend. Introduction of strangers to the village, including the academic and the jester. They now travel and meet the Hargus, and Danny becomes the May Queen, the beer and the goat. The older members who jump from the cliff with wings are upside down as if they're descending opposed to ascending. The feast and the dancing ritual, the sun and the empty throne. The painting also represents the seasons, winter, spring, summer, and autumn. And in autumn, instead of the harvesting harvesting crop, they harvest their sacrifices to their god. Nice job. So he tells you that all right there in the first shot. But obviously, check out the image if you're listening. And there's also a mural in the movie um, when they make it to the village and they see the mural of how that... Um, what do you call that? Like love, the seduction. Seduction is done with the pubic hairs and, and the well, that's and that's the one of those things where yeah. he shows you all these. Like it's you think it's gonna be a fun trip, but you also know it's an Ari Aster movie. Something crazy is gonna happen. You saw the trailer, you know it's gonna be effed up and it's gonna screw with your brain. But he shows you those little nuggets and these little idiosyncrasies of the environment where it seems off, seems a little weird. These people are kind of odd. It seems welcoming when they walk in with like the flutes and they're going through like that big structure and they're all giving each other hugs and everything. But then, yeah, like you said, that mural where no one sees the sheets hanging. But if you watch it, it's about a woman seducing a man and making him fall in love with her or or attraction by putting her pubic hair in his food and having him eat it. And her blood in his in his drink. And then he. Yeah, that's why Christian's glass is a little darker than everyone else's yeah. when they have like that orange juice It's like drink. a lemonade and then everyone's drink is yellow and his has like this orange hue to it. And then also the meat pie is filled with the pubic hair and this is from Ugh. the redhead woman. And also what I really love, another little Easter egg is that in the guy's apartment in the first act, um, you can see there is a, a doll of the scarecrow from Wizard of Oz. No way. On their fridge. On top of their fridge, just sitting there. So there's and there's also a couple other because that's what happens to yeah. uh, which one they they all become scarecrows. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, all the guys do, and so they except for Simon, that poor guy. Yeah, that he he goes through hell. But um, yeah, this, and there's another scarecrow. I can't remember where, but there's two other images of scarecrows hidden in the first act of the movie, foreshadowing them being uh, turned into scarecrows. It's Man. so crazy. And this movie, it's so great the way they open it up. And the foundation of the movie, yeah, it's a horror film. But it really is a relationship film and a breakup film. That's what's so cool about it is it's a breakup movie. And it's like a perfect or the ultimate good for her movie too where the woman gets revenge on the man because it, it starts or it focuses on the relationship mostly between Christian and Danny. And when before her family dies, we have the scenes with her talking on the phone with her friend thinking that like, oh, he's going to break up with me. He's just acting odd and, and I'm kind of sick of it basically. And then Christian's talking to his friends and his friends are like, dude, why don't you just break up with her? Why haven't you done it yet? So Christian, he's staying in this relationship because, you know, this happens where people don't want to hurt the other person. They're kind of feel stuck and they don't have enough courage to just end things because in the end it, it's going to hurt. But overall, you're both going to be better off. But he's He's lingering there, and he's he's keeping the relationship going for he, who knows why. He's already thinking about other women. He he does so many things as a horrible boyfriend to 
Danny throughout the entire film. Yeah, and then Danny's entire journey throughout this film, sticking with the the breakup movie, is it's not so much yeah she she gets her revenge in a way, but it's also about her overcoming Christian and, and the relationship and the grief, but and also entering a new family because first she loses her family and then she's in this relationship with a guy that doesn't want to be with her. Yeah, Christian basically stays with her after the yeah. death of her family because I mean he feels indebted. Who to, wouldn't yeah. stay with her? You know exactly. And and as they're on this trip. Christian clearly is a horrible boyfriend. Just like the, he does all the things wrong. He he forgets her birthday, and he also forgets that it was their four year anniversary just two yeah. weeks before. When they're like, "Oh, how long have you been dating?" He's like three and a half years, and, the, and she, she's she, like, "No, it's uh, four. two weeks ago is four years." Yeah. Like, how do you forget? So he also forgot their anniversary. Exactly, and and then on top of that, Christian has sex with um the the Hager girl. I can't remember her name, and Danny sees that, and so. She's losing everything, and and she lost her parents, and her and her her boyfriend has betrayed her, and and she's kind of stuck. And her typical self before this trip, she would have just given into the grief and given into um, being used, and she was basically she's a kind of a weak person, weak willed, and and passive because of all the pa- her trauma and her grief. E- exactly, and so in this movie throughout, uh, ironically throughout the horrific events of this movie, in her transformation into the May Queen being accepted into this culture and the society she gains the power to take control of her life back and to she's the one who he will who allows christian to be burned she she's given the choice uh it doesn't have to be him but she she allows it to be christian and then as she watches it burn she cries and she weeps and it's a cathartic moment for her uh, the ending of this movie is it's cathartic because once she gets out all the pain and then she watches as the the temple just crumbles and burns. And then once the pain's gone, she's filled with joy. Yeah, she's like laughing like a kid. Yeah, like. exactly. Because her life is, she's kind of like reborn into this new society. Um, Pele, basically his plan was to bring her into the society because he very much had a similar background to her where his parents died. And he thinks that he can truly help her. And he's he, attracted to and her. And he clearly has an attraction to her and wants to be in a relationship with her. And so he's trying to show her how this could be a new family for her. So uh, as horrible as the movie, as the story is for the other characters, it's a beautiful mo- story of uh, overcoming uh, grief and loss and taking control back of your life for Danny. By burning a bunch of people alive. Yeah, yeah. beautiful story. You gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> Good for her. Good for her. <laughs> and Christian, he's just not even just a bad boyfriend. He's also just a bad friend. I mean... He, he oh, yeah. steals Josh's idea for the thesis because they're anthropology majors and they have to write a thesis. And Josh's plan is to study the Hager village. And he's also going to go to Germany and another country. And that's where his thesis is going to be about. He's he's going there for that reason. It's planned. And, and Christian knows this. But then Christian's like, I'm going to do my thesis here as well. Mm. And then also he tries to throw Josh under the bus when the elders are lying, obviously, about that missing book from their sacred temple. And he's like, it was nothing to do with me if it was Josh. I'm not even friends with him. We're not even together. I don't want to be associated with him at all. So he throws him under the bus immediately. Yeah, exactly. And he also didn't tell Danny about the trip at all. Yeah. Yeah. She finds out at the party that they're going to go in two weeks and he already has a ticket. It's for like a two-month trip too. And what it's he, crazy. It's crappy what he does to her after that situation when she tries to bring it up to him very politely and respectfully. She doesn't want to start an argument clearly, but she's trying to understand why he didn't tell her about the trip. And he reverses onto her and she has to end up being the one who's apologizing to him because he's 
just a P-O-S-N. Good for her burning that guy alive. <laughs> <laughs> he deserved it. <laughs> He's just a crappy dude. He's a bad boyfriend, for sure. And I mean, I think everyone has an experience getting stuck in a relationship or not even a relationship, but just like kind of like discovering like, why am I hanging out with this person? Like they're shitty. Yeah. And I, it was great that you brought up how she has so much trauma where she doesn't really react to things anymore. Like she's so shut off, especially when he forgets her birthday, but then Pele, you know, secretly gives him the little piece of cake with the candle on it. And then he tries to wish her happy birthday. And she like has no reaction because she's gone through so much like I don't even care anymore. You know, that's kind of her feelings towards Christian with most of the things that he pulls or forgets to pull. Exactly. And just like in Hereditary, Ari Aster has a moment at the end of the first act that really sets the stage for what the movie is. And it's another moment of shock and horror. And this is um, the cliff jump when the two elders jump off the cliff um, committing suicide so that they can um, live into the next stage of their existence in the afterlife. And uh, it's viewed as a beautiful thing and part of the culture with this society. But obviously for us in the uh, European and American tourists, they are absolutely shocked by this. And this is a moment where you see this and you see the first, the, the woman jumps and she she is killed instantly. She succeeds, but then the old man jumps in. You had one job guy. Yeah, he messes that up. Like he is just a wreck on the floor. You got a swan dive off that Still cliff. alive. <laughs> like his legs, his bones are shattered. He and, did a pencil jump into yeah. a pool. Oh my God. And then those those people run up to him with the giant wooden hammer and then just bash his face in. Uh, and, and it's just like they this great special effect of like like seeing this like Oh, that was practical effects. Oh, yeah. It was amazing. You know, special effects are practical. Visual effects are digital. Gotcha. Thought you knew movies. Thought you knew movies. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a scene that is just like the Charlie's death scene in Hereditary where it just takes the audience and just surprises them to life. Yeah, so let's talk about this Hager village because it's so fascinating and yeah. creepy. And obviously, all these communes in Sweden and the Scandinavian countries they're not all like this this doesn't this is not normal and also this this one in particular it's only this year in particular every or, every 50 years no or every so. 90 years every 90 they years do that... their their nine day feast and celebration yeah. so the Hager thing that you were talking about with the ages how they experience their lives in in springs and every 18 years is a season so up until from birth to age 18 that's considered spring from 18 to 36, that's considered summer. From 36 to 54, that's considered fall. And then from 54 to 72, that's winter. And at 72, that's the end of your life cycle. And you sacrifice yourself basically for the good of the village, for the good of the tribe, you can say. And the main theme, obviously, on both films is grief and trauma. And it's so interesting how I think the the village, they all experience grief together as a community, as like one being. So whenever anyone in the commune or village is experiencing pain or grief, they all all, all feelings. They experience it all together. So like when the guy is moaning after he jumps down the cliff and is still alive, they're all screaming with him. And when Danny's experienced that breakdown of grief after watching Christian have sex with, with uh, Ula, I think that's her name, Ula? Yeah, Ula. Ula la. Ula la. That's probably what, yeah. And then she's having that breakdown and, and, and moaning and screaming and crying. They're all screaming and crying with her. But also during the sex scene, all the women are experiencing the the pleasure that she's yeah. experiencing so during weird. the moment. So they share all emotions, the entire village. It's not just grief. It's everything. And it, it's so odd because the village seems like so welcoming when they come in and, 
and the the whole movie can be interpreted if you want as like a giant trip because it opens up at in Sweden when they get there the first thing they do is they trip out on mushrooms and they kind of you could say are drinking mushrooms the entire time they're there they just don't know it so maybe there's there's a great way to to talk about Danny and her experiences in the film is is she going through like a mental health breakdown or is she experiencing hallucinations from the mushroom tea and the drinks that they're giving maybe it's a little bit of both maybe it's neither maybe she's no she's definitely going through something oh yeah well i think it's all real though no so, i'm not saying yeah. that it's not all real i'm just okay. saying you can interpret it like that oh okay i got gotcha. you because she's constantly tripping out on mushrooms bro oh yeah so so are the others too yeah i love that scene when uh christian's really tripping and like he's being set up and then the old guys just claps in front of his face and he's like why'd you do that <laughs> <laughs> he's like why would you do that but there's there's more so many odd things just when they get there and, and uh pele's showing them around like the giant yellow triangle temple that they're not allowed to go near uh the bear in the cage and they're just like we're just not going to talk about the bear and Pele's like oh it's just a bear like why is there a bear here <laughs> like what the hell <laughs> and also the customs like when they have the feasts and then they have to wait for the elders to move at all. And the the production design did a really great job. That table is so cool. The set is make, makes like the X the way it connects. Mm-hmm. And it's it's really fascinating to see the behavior of the culture. And also the culture itself is influenced by the imagination of that handicapped boy, which they who they bred specifically for this purpose of like basically writing the ritual. He's an oracle. It's an oracle for the entire culture, and this is something they've always done. And it's just like a very bizarre world that doesn't seem like it could be real, but it is. Yeah, and Josh is actually being explained to by one of the elders about that character and what their purpose is and how he's, he talks about how because of his handicap, he's unclouded from like reality and the pressures of life. So whatever he paints, the elders interpret, and that goes into sacred law, basically, of, of the commune. It's like pure creation, yeah, un- uninfluenced by anything. And speaking of pure creation and creativity, how about you tell everyone about some movie poster stuff? You can get creative at your house with decking it out with a ton of movie posters from movieposters.com. Use our special promo code RAIDERS15 to get 15% off your order today. They have every kind of movie you can think of, all sizes, framing, backlighting. They got it all. If you're a fan of movies, if you're a fan of TV shows, there's no better way to express that love than by decking your place out with a ton of posters. And the best place to do that is at movieposters.com. Use our promo code RAIDERS15 to get 15% off your order today at movieposters.com. Now it's time to do our top-tier Patreon shout-out. Thank you to everyone who is a patron. You really help support the show. For all you top-tier patrons, get excited. You're about to hear your name. Justin, Caleb Fleming, Michael Karanja, Riley McDonald, Nate Moore, Harry Roscoe, Harrison Ball, Caitlin Signorelli, Travis Ball, Nicola Simeona, Jacob Kostler, Josh Chetney, Dennis, Jorge Chavez, Caleb McFalls, Ken Bolin, Dennis, Aaron McArdle, Sal Guarnera, Max Rosk, Justin T. Frank, Tyler McDowell, Lawrence Smurz, Grayson Younts, Cole Carroll, Christopher Tunnel, Tanner Teagarden, Madison Yamarillo, Barrett Compton, Andy Walker, TJ Rollins, Andrew Lukler, Nick Sheridan, Hunter Smith, Carter Brandon, Nicholas Ozaniak, Timon Hayashi, Caitlin Callahan, Sarai Rogers, Charles McLaughlin, Brandon Smith, Ethan Storm, Devin Udarium, Lucas Key, Derek Noonan, William Calimano, Miriam Ally, Hayden Polkinghorn, Christopher Zabo, Byron McClellan, 
Brooke Shanks, Stephen Gaidos, Zach Kormanek, Simon Tuz, Brittany Underwood, Jeremy Slattery, Jeremy Benavidez, Cody Moan, Samantha Steele, Frank Caraglio, Michael Kelly, Brandon Bernal, Dave Coburn, Josh Coburn, Joe Lopez, Rachel Von Den Heuvel, Don Payne, Kayla McCoy, Brian Barton, Archie Owen, Derek Perkins, Daniel aka Just Dan the Man, Jack Jordan, Olivia Pacini, Megan Costa, Chris Farmer, Lauren Gonzalez, and Patrick Clausen. Thank you so much to all of our patrons out there. If you want to be a patron, just go to patreon.com slash raise the lost podcast to get all the cool perks. We love you all. Y'all rock. Now, what exactly is midsummer? So it's a period of time Middle centered. Middle of summer. <laughs> I'm being a wise ass. It's a period of time centered upon the summer solstice and more specifically the northern European celebrations that accompany the actual solstice or take place on a day between June 19th and June 25th and the preceding evening. And so, again, this is not what every midsummer celebration is like. I'm sure there's probably no summer midsummer celebrations like this at all, but, you know, Ariaster is just going to play with it. Yeah, and I think obviously it's influenced from that culture and he just, you know, played around with it, got a little extreme in some cases. And, you know, I, I think that, like we said earlier, you see so many horror movies with the same thing, the same setup, same family, same house, you know, same ghosts, same demons. It's over and over and over again. And it's like he just likes to shake it up with a completely new kind of story. And uh, you can make a whole, you can make a horror movie about anything. It doesn't have to be the same haunted house. And I think he understands that. And that's why Midsommar is such a refreshing take on horror. Yeah, and this community, it's so odd because they seem to have no guilt or emotions about committing these murders, which are for their community because of their 90-year celebration. And it first starts off, who's the first people who get taken out are the Brits. The so uh Simon and his girlfriend Connie. So Simon mm. goes missing because they say that he took a train and he left Connie there, and then Connie goes missing too. But we don't see them until later on. Like when we see Simon finally, Oof. he's cut up inside that barn and he's still alive, and his lungs are still breathing air, and he's just got holes inside of his head. Does he feel things? Does he feel anything at that I point? I think he's still he's definitely still alive. Maybe I think he's he, probably in like a coma or something. He Hope, might not be conscious. Yeah. I hope he's not conscious. He's, he's got to be in a coma. He must be like drugged up to be able because they obviously have antibiotics in him so he doesn't get an infection right away and then also he's probably drugged up to be unconscious. Yeah. It's so creepy. When he when he gets into that little cabin and he and he looks up and sees that, that is such a crazy so moment. So disturbing, man. So messed up. And then Connie disappears too, but we don't see her late until later on when she's being put in the wheelbarrow for the final <laughs> sacrifice. Oh my god. And then the main characters that are with Danny and Christian are Josh and Mark. And so Josh is there for his thesis for anthrop his anthropology class. And then Mark is there just for selfish reasons. He, he gets, just wants to get messed up. To get messed up and, and he wants to sleep with Swedish girls. And he obviously is the most ignorant person there, clearly. He's just kind of like the, the jester, which is why he's got the jester hat at the end during the sacrifice as well on his on his scarecrowed head. And he also... Like he pees on the tree, yeah, the sacred he, tree. he performs that horrible act of peeing on the their elders and their past people of their community. And for both of them, you could say that, I wouldn't say people, the characters deserve to get killed, but in the eyes of the village, Josh and Mark both rightfully in their eyes deserve to be killed and be sacrificed because obviously Mark peeing on the sacred tree, but then also Josh, when he sneaks into the sacred temple and takes photos of their scrolls. And he was specifically told this was highly forbidden. And, this scene is so scary 
because he's taking the photos and then he turns around and he sees who he thinks is Mark, but it's actually the the kid Ulf uh, wearing Mark's face, just like Hannibal Lecter style. And then he bashes his head in with that with that um what do you call it? Like a the giant hammer. Yeah, the huge hammer. The bludgeon yeah. object. The bludgeon, yeah. The other oh guy. My, well, it's not. He Ulf. sneaks up behind him. Yeah. Someone else does it to yeah. him. Yeah. Oh my god, it's so crazy. It's truly terrifying because again, Ari just like lulls you in with this disturbing tension. And third act is when things start to hit the fan and get crazy. But what's really, sh- I think, one of the best parts of the movie is when uh, Danny becomes the May Queen because this is the beginning of her transformation. It never would have happened if she wasn't the May Queen. So it's important and necessary that it happened it, for her. Yeah, it's clearly a great honor to the village for the for every annual Midsommar. But and also just, probably spared her life. Yeah, and not only to be just the May Queen, but the May Queen of their 90th celebration, 90th year celebration. It probably must be one of the highest honors that can happen because they they treat her like a god, basically. Yeah, exactly. She's like the the royal highness of the affair now. And at the same time that she becomes the May Queen. Christian's being set up. Christian's being set up because they want they obviously need new seed from the outside world because you can only inbreed for so long. So you need to have some new blood some come foreign in. seed. Yeah, some foreign <laughs> seed come in. So they use him basically to impregnate Ola. Ula. Ula. Which is just the weirdest scene when he goes in there, so, and surrounded by all those that other actor. I can't remember what's his. Name. I can't remember his name, but kudos to him. He he's like nude in this movie. Jack Rayner. Jack Rayner's kudos to Jack Rayner for like being game for just being completely naked for about twenty minutes straight in this movie. Yeah, I think clearly Ariaster wanted to just flip it on its head. The cliche stuff of having the woman running helplessly, half nude or fully nude in a horror movie, making a guy be fully nude running around helplessly. And it's funny when he's when he leaves that hut. He's and like, he's like, like oh, where, do like, where do I go? Where do I go? He's like covering himself. And then it's he, so funny. And then he sees Josh's foot upside down in the garden. So he's like, holy crap, yeah. they're killing people. Yeah, it's crazy. So he's just like, the, the plan's unraveling and he's beginning to see how messed up these people are. And that's when he discovers Simon and then gets paralyzed by that that herb because it seems oh like God. like the village has everything they need holistically around them like they've been there for so long probably hundreds of years mm-hmm. maybe even longer that they know the earth so well and they have all the ingredients they need for things like that yeah and the sacrifice is uh obviously a very important ritual because not only are they using these foreigners who they allowed into the village to be sacrificed but also they're asking a couple of people from the village to volunteer themselves yeah they and they need- believe it to be an honor and this is like a crazy thing where they they take this special liquid that they think is going to numb them and so they won't experience any pain when they are in the fire but then when the place is lit on fire they start screaming bro you're on fire and they're like ah so it's a ter- clearly, terrible idea clearly it didn't work and that kind of begs the question is uh, is any of this real it's maybe well obviously i don't think it's like real like in hereditary where there's really a demon possessing somebody but it's just i think it just shows that the ignorance of a cult where they yeah. think that like oh you won't feel pain while you're being burned alive yeah. but you just lick this sap oh my god very wrong i uh, my god what are you guys crazy <laughs> and then uh christian's just like paralyzed on that chair just like looking straight ahead well before that's so great because danny you know she's the highest honor of being the may queen and she's in charge of everyone at the dinner and they do what she oh, yeah. does <laughs> first and then like you said, she gets to decide. So they they need a ninth sacrifice, and they do the lottery, and that one person from the village is chosen. But Danny, being the May Queen, she gets to decide if they have the outsider Christian be the sacrifice or the other villager be the sacrifice. 
And she's just like looking at Christian like, I just saw you banging some other girl. You are a POS. Everything you've done to me over the years and ignoring me, forgetting my birthday, forgetting our anniversary. You know what? You're going to burn, bro. Burn, baby, burn. It's insane. And then he gets put inside the bear suit. And oh, my God. That scene. The scene oh where, where they're, they're um prepping the bear. Yeah. I thought something horrible was going to happen. Like start, they would start cutting Christian up or something, yeah. but they just put him inside of it. Thank yeah. God. I thought it was going to be way worse. Yeah, I thought they were going to hack him up too, but it's even, it's just super creepy. It's also like, it's this weird blend of horror and comedy because he looks funny in the suit, but they're also like, oh my God. But also it's like kind of funny. You yeah. know what I mean? Well, it seems like all the men in this film get what they deserve because you could say they all suffer from the same main flaw which is selfishness you know mm -hmm. christian is very selfish in his relationship he only cares about himself josh is selfish in that he only cares about his thesis and he's willing to break the rules of the hager and and break what the agreement that he had with them and then mark is just selfish in terms of doing whatever he wants he's just there for pleasure so their their theme and in, in flaws of selfishness basically lead to all their demises yeah exactly it's a fantastic conclusion and watching them all burning up and then Christian's eyes are just like, he can't move, but his eyes are just like looking around the temple like, oh my God, I'm going to be next. It's insane. <laughs> it's insane. It's pretty wild. Obviously, you know, it's very reminiscent of the Wicker Man uh, in which the outsider main character is placed. Well, actually, I won't spoil that. In case yeah, that's the ending, man. Yeah. I'm not going to spoil it. I'm not going to spoil it. But the <laughs> whole film, you know, people say, yeah. oh, it's just a ripoff of the Wicker Man. I wouldn't say it's a ripoff. It's not a ripoff. It's okay to borrow. It's Quentin similar, yeah. Every, great filmmakers borrow from everything. The, the, if you, they're very different films. Yeah, they're just similar have, scenes, but it's a similar concept of a foreigner enters a culture they don't know where they're being used by that culture for a sacrifice. That's it. The Worker Man has some very weird scenes as well that are totally different. It's a very strange movie. <laughs> Super strange. That's, you, it's even weirder than this movie. Imagine watching The Worker Man like high or like tripping out. That would oh, be man. that would be a weird experience. I remember I had it on like a couple months ago. In the, the Worker Man. Yeah. Cool man. I'm just saying the Is girl. The, the, the girls story? walked in at a weird <laughs> at a weird point. I was like, I, I turned I turned it off immediately. <laughs> oh man. But uh, I I love the I love the finale and I love the final shot when she smiles. I think it's so funny. It's so great. Yeah, Florence Pugh, man. She carried this movie. Such a phenomenal actress, and I can't wait to see the rest of her career. Hopefully, she doesn't have to. I mean, I love her as she'll probably be the new Black Widow, but I would love to see her do other films. I really adore this movie. It's It was very shocking the first time I saw it, and it's fun on repeat viewings. Yeah, both of these films are tremendous, and I they're think- tremendous. They're tremendous. I think they're both <laughs> just going to age so well. I yeah. think they're just so well made. The craft is phenomenal. The stories are great. The characters are great. The, the disturbing nature are hypnotic in a way, but I think that each year these movies just get better and better, and we're only two years, three years after both of them, so I can't wait to see how- long they last in our heads and minds and appreciation for decades to come and you're just looking at me like you're gonna finish the sentence I, man <laughs> you really like these movies <laughs> you know what you're like i'm gonna dream about these movies every night <laughs> <laughs> i'm gonna be an old man on my deathbed and just be, you guys remember hereditary and midsommar man they age so well still better to this day <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a little much. <laughs> James rambles sometimes. You just see me outside of the podcast, man. You get me going. That's why I, I don't call those rambles. I call those ones rants. <laughs> oh my god! Want to go on to our superlatives? Uh, yeah, sure. Who you got for MVP? I got Ari Aster again. I put Florence Pugh. She, she's I think great. she just she know, carried it. carried the film so well. Best scene. I really love 
the um dinner scene where she's May Queen because it just kind of just shows how she now has the power, not just in her relationship with Christian, but in her life. Nice. I think it's very transformative for her. I love the ending, the burning of the temple, and then her smiling. Cliche pick. All right. <laughs> Surprised since you love this movie so much, you don't like anything about it. <laughs> I thought that no matter what I'd say, you'd be like, amazing choice. <laughs> Just think about 50 years from now. <laughs> It'll age even better. <laughs> Best shot. Um, the final shot when she smiles. I, I chose right after she wins May Queen, they stand her on that pedestal and they carry her. And behind her, Christian's just standing by himself, so he's completely oh, alone yeah, now. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it's a really great shot. Yeah. Best actor, Florence Pugh. But although, once again, you choose multiple shots for your favorite shot. No, because <laughs> I was setting up the, the shot. The shot. <laughs> <laughs> wow, you're so sassy. I just don't understand what you don't know, what you don't understand about best shot. Towards the end of the episodes, you get so sassy. Look at you. You're sassy. <laughs> I place for keeps. Best line. So we're just going to ignore the bear then? So, me too. <laughs> me too. Trivia for Midsommar. This film was originally given an NC-17 by the MPAA, according to Ariaster. Around 30 minutes was cut from the final film, mainly due to the content. Dire- director's cut released shortly after it has 22 extra minutes of this footage. The movie, the movie Midsommar has a, a very dense and complex connection to the number nine. So the complete ritual lasts for nine days in which nine lives are sacrificed to purify all of the town. Uh, in addition, P- Pele explains that the rest of the newcomers, that the life cycle conceived by Hargus people marks at 18 years, then 36, then 50, 54, then 72, all compounds of nine. In addition, the, sea, the feast itself is celebrated every 90 years, which is nine times 10 implying that each one of the sacrifice equal 10 years of purity for the town. So every time, so every person that sacrificed means 10 years of purity. During the feast name, even the feast name Midsommar is made up of nine letters. And when Danny leaves a message for her parents, the answering machine number counts up to nine before it leaves the frame. And then the importance of nine derives from the old myth of Odin, father of the all Norse gods, who hung upside down for nine days in Yggdrasil tree of the world in order to bring knowledge to the world creating futhark runes language so basically the sacrifices are to kind of absolve the villagers of their sins in a way you could say and also i feel like they, didn't they mention the bear is to protect them and yeah. and it's an enemy to them that they're getting rid of right mm-hmm. yeah a predator this is a really interesting thing about um mark displays an extreme phobia of ticks which is based on ariaster's real fear of bugs and illness like mark ariaster wore two pairs of socks over his jeans to ensure he would not receive bug bites and you know what ticks are no joke i mean if you get lyme disease that is some serious stuff guys. yeah lyme disease is serious big time not a joke Mm-mm. don't mess with those ticks or those socks William Jackson Harper is the only American actor in the film. Jack Rayner, although born in Colorado, is Irish. Florence Pugh is English, and Will Poulter is English. All other supporting actors are either Swedish, British, or Hungarian. Despite the film taking place entirely in sunlight, it does not contain one shot of the sun, which is really interesting because usually you would at least see a couple shots of the sun in a movie like this, but Mm -hmm. I never really thought about this. Like no sunsets, no sunrises, nothing like Mm -hmm. that. It kind of makes it feel like a fairy tale or like a 
or nightmare or dream in a way. Yeah, or like that day never ends. Because we never see any source of light. That's pretty interesting. Yeah, very interesting. Is that all you got? That's all I got. We said the rest in the episode. All right, well, thank you so much for tuning into this episode, which was basically a director spotlight in Ari Aster for Hereditary and Midsommar. Be sure to go to patreon.com slash Raiders of Lost Podcast. Become a patron today. You can hear your name shouted out as well as everybody else's. You get bonus episodes every Tuesday, some fun perks as well. In addition to that, like our podcast schedules. The bonus episodes have been great so far. We did Pe- Dead Poet Society, Philip Seymour Hoffman Spotlight, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. We did. We just went over the greatest, best, the best picture winners of the last 20 years that came out really well. So yeah, so yeah. thanks everyone who's already a patron and be sure to follow us on social medias. Find us everywhere. Thank you so much for tuning in around the world. Take care, everyone. Raiders of the Lost podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.